We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 151. Our guest today is a specialist in biomechanics, not just for humans, but also for horses, and especially how those two forces have the ability to work so seamlessly together. With her business, JK Inspired, it is a vision to train and ride horses in accordance with sound equine biomechanical principles, which I think are so important to consider when riding our horses. They're all moving and acting as individual horses, and if we can really understand how each horse moves and acts and behaves, it's got to help us ride them better and understand them better. So who better to have on than the biomechanical professional herself, Jillian Kreinbring? I would love to hear about how you first kind of found yourself in the horse world. Well, I was one of those lucky kids that grew up with a horse family. So I I grew up on a farm in the state of Iowa. And when I was a young child, my parents had a a herd of horses that they enjoyed. We would hack them, take them on trail rides, and they had a small buying and selling business. So they would find a horse that they, they thought was good quality, put a little time into the horse, and then find a good home for it. And, and so we kind of traded horses in and out of our annual repertoire. Hmm. And then when I got a little older, my dad somehow (laughs) with his friends, he got talked into purchasing a stallion. Ah. Yes. And life changed at that point in that instead of having some horses that we were buying and selling and enjoying just as a family, we suddenly had a broodmare herd and a stallion and foals every year. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Which was great fun. I, I mean, there's just nothing more enjoyable than getting to spend every spring with baby foals and mm-hmm. you know, the excitement of waiting on the mares to to foal and just to see what they've produced. So then the horse business became a little bit more serious at that point, And we needed a way to market our stock. So at nine, I started to compete. Hmm. So then we, we found ourselves very heavily involved in the competition world in the quarter horse industry, okay. as well as the paint horse industry. So we competed in the fraturity classes, halter classes, Western pleasure classes, some reigning horses, some all around horses and so forth. And, and I just, I really had just a wonderful, wonderful childhood with the horses. They were most definitely my best friends and competed all through high school. And then when I went to college, I spent every summer and Christmas break riding with a professional trainer so I could continue my education. And the day after I graduated from college, I was offered a head training position in Germany of all places. Wow. 
And I was quite, you know, innocent. And it was back in the day where I accepted the the job via a fax of all things. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, got on a plane and, and went to Germany. And I was recommended by some other European friends of mine that I had ridden with during my college years. Mm. And so I spent two and a half years in Germany doing exactly what I had been trained to do here in the United States and continued to show and train horses. And we, we, we showed and competed all over, all over Europe. And, you know, at the ripe old age of 23, I thought I was really something else. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I thought I knew everything just because I had won some money and some, some prizes. And, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing when I look back at just how much I thought I knew and how much I really didn't know anything Hmm. at all. But during my time there in Europe, it was probably the first time that I started not to enjoy my time with horses because I felt so much pressure from the competition world. Sure. And I felt as if I had to train horses in a particular way to meet the trends within the industry. And if I didn't meet the the trends and if I wasn't in the top three placings, you know, my fear was that I wouldn't be able to have a client base. And if there was no client base, then I didn't have a way of supporting myself, but I didn't really like what I was doing with horses or two horses. I should say there was something very deep inside of me that really longed for the type of relationships that I had with my horses when I was younger, mm-hmm. a more innocent based relationship, mm-hmm. the fun, the, the, the play. And so I knew I needed to make a change, but I didn't know exactly what that change was at that time. So I, I left Germany and I came back to the United States and I decided that I was going to go to graduate school. I knew I wanted to study something about horses, but I wasn't sure what that looked like. I needed to establish residency in the state of Wisconsin so that I could afford in-state tuition. Okay. So for that year, I decided, well, what can I do? Well, I guess I'll train more horses because that's how I knew how to make an income. And I have to state that my training techniques at that time, you know, I had a very big head and I really thought I was, you know, really something. My training techniques were were really based on dominance, subjugation, and training approach that led to learned helplessness within horses. Hmm. So if I wanted a horse to do A, I knew exactly how to get the horse to do A. And it didn't matter how I did it. Right. And that didn't sit well inside of me when I came back and started to train horses in the United States. Hmm. I knew that there had to be something more and there had to be a different way, but I didn't know what that was. So I took a horse in training and I actually had a riding accident. I was riding a horse in a field and had been farmed for many years. So the land was not flat. It was contoured. Mm-hmm. And I had dropped a rein and I was cantering and I was cantering towards this berm of grass, which actually had grown quite tall and was covering a barbed wire fence. Oh gosh. 
Yeah. So I, you know, we've all had those moments probably with a horse where you have to make a very quick decision. Other, otherwise you're going to find yourself in a heap of trouble. Mm-hmm. So I knew if I stayed on, I risked the chance of the horse cantering into that grass and getting tangled in the barbed wire. I also thought about an option B, which would be to stay on and maybe the horse would put his brakes on and do a 180 and take off across the field. Mm -hmm. And rather I chose number three, which was just an emergency dismount. So I swung off, but because the land was not flat, when I landed, I heard my first snap and I broke my leg and I buckled under my leg and then I flipped several times and I heard a second snap and I broke my back. Oh my gosh. Now I know that it was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. I know that probably sounds strange, but it was in that moment as I was waiting for the ambulance, it was in that moment that I realized that I actually didn't know anything about horses. Really. Hmm. I didn't really know anything about horses in terms of who they are as a species, as sentient beings. And I also had the realization while I was laying there that everything I had been doing with my horses set aside from the time when I was a child was really completely driven by my ego. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, now I, I think it was that defining moment that really opened Pandora's box for me. And it was at that moment that I became a true student of the horse. That was over 25 years ago now. Hmm. And so the first writing lesson after my accident was with a woman named Peggy Cummings. And in that lesson, she threw around terms that we are all familiar with within the horse industry, like balance, collection, self-carriage, and so forth. And I realized that, you know, I've, I've heard all of those terms, but I really didn't know what any of them really meant. Hmm. And then I went to go step up on my horse for my lesson. And she gently said to me, we never get on a horse without preparing the horse first from the ground so that he is prepared to carry the weight of a rider. Hmm. And then she introduced me to in-hand exercises that prepared the horse, not only physically, but mentally and emotionally for that time then that we were going to spend together in that session. And that really lit the fire. And so that led me then to my research at the university, which was based on studying functional anatomy, learning about the horse's scaffolding and how that horse should best move his scaffolding so that he can stay sound, healthy, and happy Hmm. of mind, body, and spirit through his lifetime. Yeah. And I came from an industry where horses quite frequently were retired at seven or eight years old. And I wanted something more. I wanted to be able to have relationships with my horses on a mental, physical, and and in a spiritual way all the way into their 20s and for them to stay sound and, and more importantly, that they're vital into their old age. 
So that's really been my my journey and and I'm still on that journey and there and I'm so curious about learning more and becoming better. And that's what led me to the study of functional anatomy. And that is what I teach today. Amazing. I love that. At what point had you started? Because obviously you did a lot of Western growing up. At what point had you started getting into dressage? Yes. Well, I can remember two, two moments specifically. I was competing some stock horses when I was in high school and there was a woman named Barb and she had a foundation quarter horse that she competed in the hunt seat classes. Okay. And I was always in awe of how beautiful he was. And she told me that she used dressage principles in her Western education. And that always stuck in my head. And then when I moved to Germany, of course, I was then very much exposed to, to dressage, not just competitive dressage, but classical dressage. And I started to notice that a lot of the Europeans were having amazing luck, not luck, results with their Western horses because they were applying their dressage education to the development of the horses. And, and so that again was a, another defining moment for me because dressage is for every horse, hands down. And it is the focal point of what I do now today in terms of the techniques of applying healthy movement patterns to our horses from a a classically um, based theory. Got it. Amazing. Let's dive in a little bit into the functional anatomy aspect of your work. Tell me a little bit about that in both, I guess, both horse and rider for balance and and overall healthy movement and what that looks like. Well, as an ambitious (laughs) graduate student, my primary focus was looking at equine musculature Hmm. and how a horse develops as an indicator of the posture in which they move. And when I first chose that as my primary focus, I wanted to do it for the whole body of the horse. So I marched into my uh, advisor's office and said, I want to do this for the whole body of the horse. And he very politely said, well, slow down, kiddo. That's a very ambitious goal. Why don't we choose an area of the horse to focus on? And so I gave that some thought. And in my studies, I realized that probably one of the most misunderstood parts of the horse's body is the head and the neck. And when I see horses ridden inappropriately or poorly, and what I mean by that, I mean horses ridden in a way that works against their anatomy as opposed to with their anatomy for beautiful and healthy development. Mm -hmm. So my research then focused on the horse's neck and how the horse should use his head and neck in a healthy posture. And when he does so, what is the muscular developmental pattern? Uh And when horses are contorted, or ridden only with the hand, or a horse is ridden in terms of only what the rider sees in front of them, Uh and the horses are 
mm, framed in unhealthy ways, the muscles will develop in another type of characteristic patterning. So that's where I started with my functional anatomy journey. And then, of course, we have to look at the whole body. Mm-hmm. I think in my research, you know, what, what, when you do research, really your, your, one of your grandest goals should be for people to poke holes in your research. It's not about being right in your research. It's about having an idea and maybe you're really onto something and maybe some of the things that, that you research are spot on. But what's important is to recognize the things that aren't spot on so that you can fill those gaps and layer good research on top of good research. So after intensely studying the neck, of course, I had to study the whole body because you can't just look at the horse in isolation. You you have to look at, at how all the systems work in concert, not just the skeletal system and the muscular system, but the visceral system, the circulatory system, the cranial sacral system, the whole system, systems anatomy. And when you, when you become a, a beginner's mind, every time you look at the body, you start to see the complexities of it and just how beautifully orchestrated the body can be. And it's even more beautifully orchestrated when all those systems work in harmony. Mm-hmm. So when you start to learn about functional anatomy, you can start to see the discord. You know, in music, that doesn't always sound so great. Well, when you start to study motion and how the body should move, when you start to, to, to see the things that are working against each other, it's like hitting a wrong chord mm-hmm. in, in a song. Here's a quick word from our sponsor, Double D Trailers. Founded in 1997, Double D Trailers has been changing the horse trailer industry one customer at a time through the use of safe materials, technologies, and innovation. The experts at Double D Trailers prioritize both horse and human safety through their patented features, such as their Safe Bump roof system, Safe Kick wall system, as well as the company's exclusive Safe Tack and Safe Tack reverse design. Customers rave about the functionality of Double D trailers and find that their problem loader horse now loads with ease thanks to the customizations available from Double D. Why settle for any old average trailer off the dealer lot when you can customize your dream trailer to fit both you and your horse's needs? Learn more at DoubleDTrailers.com. That's D-O-U-B-L-E-D Trailers.com. Or find them on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Double D Horse Trailers. Thank you so much, Double D Horse Trailers. All right, let's get back to the episode. Based on your research, where do you find is the ideal? Because it seems like, you know, everyone, every trainer, every rider kind of has their own idea about an ideal head and neck position for, for each horse. Based on your research, where have you found that sweet spot? Is it very different? you know, horse by horse case scenario, is there kind of an, an overarching position that you look for, for that ideal shape and that ideal comfort for the horse? What are your thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. It also takes me to this idea that posture 
in a horse is dynamic, meaning I'm not looking to place or to put or to hold my horse in a static frame and just hope that that's the the ideal. Right. Posture is dynamic. It's ever-changing. And that's so true for the rider as well. The rider tries to hold themselves on a moving object. They will be tight and braced. Mm -hmm. The most beautiful riders we see move with the horse, which requires movement. They might be micro motions, but there's always movement. It's always dynamic. And the same for the horse. So every horse is very different. In a favorite saying of mine is it depends mm-hmm. what type of anatomical arrangement or shape does that individual horse have? Mm-hmm. Where is that horse emotionally? Emotion dictates posture. Are they sympathetic in their nervous system? Or are they parasympathetic in their nervous system? Does the horse have a low set neck? Does the horse have a high set neck? What discipline is this horse going to be spending most of his or her time in. Mm -hmm. So neck placement is very dynamic. But what I do know is that no matter if you're working in an elementary posture or very advanced posture, we still want there to be length in the neck, Mm -hmm. not, not compression. So it does absolutely vary based upon the individual. Like my, my, my mentor, one of my mentors, Manolo Mendez from Australia, Manolo said to me once, Jillian, I can train a hundred horses in shoulder in, but I will train it a hundred different ways. Hmm. But at the end of the day, it's still shoulder in. Right. And I, and I think that's very, very true with, with the training of our horses. People can argue and debate and have conversations till the cows come home about technique and methodology. Mm-hmm. The reason why I love functional anatomy is that it's functional anatomy. So there are certain things that are truths. And that's what I try to base my work on. Definitely. So then when you are, I guess, trying to diagnose or analyze a specific horse and their ideal, most comfortable, most high-performing shape to their body, where do you kind of analyze that? Are they just standing? Do you put them on a lunge line? Are you walking them? Are you on them? What does that kind of look like to find that ideal shape? Mm-hmm. That's another great question. I am a, a very big believer in, in educating my horses from the ground. Mm-hmm. I make a distinction between groundwork and in-hand work. Groundwork for me is essentially a horse's basic manners. How do they lead? How, how do they stand to be groomed? What is their emotional state? When I'm working with this horse, with my groundwork in the arena, am I able to regulate regulate tempo? Is the rhythm correct? Can I start to teach my horse to laterally flex at the pole a little bit? Can I get my horse to start thinking about a correct lateral bend through the body through the use of a cavasson? Mm-hmm. 
And then once I have these basic groundwork mm, conversations established with my horses, then I will start to work towards shaping their posture from the ground, either in a cavasson with up close work, or I will transition them into a bridle where I start to teach them how to release the jaw, where I teach them how to find the correct lateral flexion at the AO joint. And every horse during these developmental months are going to tell me where their natural balance point is. And that's where I start to find where I can regulate head and neck posture. For example, this is an, an, another thing you have to take into consideration. Let's say I'm working a horse in hand in the cabasson. Going to the right, he uses his right hawk very well. So I can bring his posture up a little bit to shift his center of gravity back so that when he steps under to the midline, he can bend deeply build kinetic energy and push himself up and forward into a more longitudinal posture. But if I track to the left and he has a weaker hawk, I can't bring his head and neck posture up as high because he can't bend that hawk as deeply because it's not yet strong enough. So I might even vary my head and neck posture depending on the sidedness of the horse or the weak leg, or the strong leg, or the, the slower leg. So I have to become a very, very keen observer from the ground. Yeah. And so when I find and I can establish where this horse basically comes into good basic balance in terms of relative elevation from the front to the back, that's a place where I like to then start working with the horses so that I can bring them into balance as opposed to just a long, long posture where they might consistently fall on the forehand. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So, mm -hmm. so I'm looking for my, my balancing points. You know, we always think about horses losing their balance from front to back. Mm -hmm. They're falling on the forehand. We got to shift them back. But horses also lose their balance from side to side. Mm -hmm. So I'm always looking and helping to modulate that to help the horse to come into balance where he can then self-carry. Mm -hmm. So that's where I start to establish and to determine what is the best place for that individual in their education. Then, of course, as they become more balanced and start working in degrees of collection, then that head and neck axis can start to come up because they're strong enough, right. not because I'm pulling them up with my hands. Mm -hmm. Amazing. I love that. And then you were saying that they kind of tell you where their balance is. Is that in a form of just like softness through their mouth? Like, do you see that like a, a form of like relaxation or what do you kind of look for to know that they are telling you where the right spot is? Well, I think that the training scale is always a good modulator. It always has to keep coming back to rhythm and relaxation. If I start to lose my rhythm or if I start to lose my relaxation, I need to take a step back. So Dr. Deb Bennett talks about working horses in what she calls the envelope of release. So when the horse can, if I'm, if I'm doing some work in the cavasson, it's a little bit 
difficult to explain via a conversation without a visual, but let's say I'm walking backwards with my horse. I have the cavasson on mm-hmm. and I want to shape the horse with a, a good lateral flexion at a pole and start to work on lateral bend through the body. What I'm looking for is does the horse fall in? Does the horse fall out? Or does he consistently fall into my hand? Those are my, my boundaries. So I start to know when the horse is correct, when he can carry himself without falling in, without falling out and without falling into my hand. Mm -hmm. And then he has to have that basic soft shape, softness at the pole and the mouth through the neck from the pole all the way to the tail. And when he can carry himself without losing his balance, then I know I'm on the right track. Mm -hmm. And when they're doing that, that's what we refer to as the horse working in the envelope of release. Got it. It's it's not about doing something to the horse. Mm -hmm. It's about shaping the horse's energy and allowing the horse to find that place while you guide him and shape him. Yes. Got it. For someone who doesn't do a lot of in-hand work or groundwork, but wants to kind of start dabbling in that to find that for you know their relationship with their horse and overall connectedness and relaxation, how can they start kind of dabbling into that? Do you have certain like beginner exercises you recommend or things to kind of start that journey? Mm-hmm. Well, I feel so so, so, so blessed because just the right people came into my life (laughs) at the right time. Sure. So I can give you some names of people that influenced me and their work is a part of my daily work. People like Linda Tellington-Jones with her work on the ground, some of Peggy Cummings' groundwork, And then we can start to become a little bit more shapely in our approach. And I was then mentored by Manolo Mendez and the late Mark Russell with the bridal work Mm. and another woman named Stephanie Milham. There are also some other very good programs out there like the straightness training or the academic approach to to classical dressage. There are lots of different veins of people that you can follow. And the names that I just mentioned are people that work within what I feel is a good platform in terms of they're basing their work off of good functional anatomy mm-hmm. and understanding of the horse's mental processes. So what I do is a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And here's a pinch of this and a pinch Mm -hmm. of that. You know, there isn't really a recipe because each horse is very unique, but you have these foundational places that you can draw from. Yep, exactly. And I'm sure you don't want to do a shameless plug, but I will for the sake. You have so many wonderful resources and online programs and things like that. So tell me a little bit about JK Inspired and kind of all the resources that you offer online. Yes. Well, COVID has been a very interesting time because (laughs) I, I love teaching live. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I travel and I teach three classes. I teach a course on functional anatomy where we look at the horse's whole body. We look at the scaffolding of the horse and how the horse should use the scaffolding in terms of healthy posture. And I love teaching that course. That's followed up then by a course that I teach on rhythm, which is where I start to incorporate the human component because we we cannot dance with our horses from the ground or from the saddle if we don't also take responsibility for our own bodies Hmm. and understanding how we work. And during that rhythm class, we also look at energetically, what do we bring to rhythm? Are we, are we bringing our baggage to the barn, so to speak, right? right, right. So we, we look at rhythm from a very different perspective than just the bare bones of this is what rhythm is. So a horse has a four beat walk and a two beat trot and three beat canter, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. We do also cover that information, but it's um, so much more than that. Amazing. And then after that, I teach a third course on relaxation where, where we talk m- much more extensively about the biomechanics and functional anatomy, again, of the horse's head and neck. We look at the tongue, the hyoid, the AO complex, and how we can bring about relaxation through these physical structures and tap into a system called the stomatonathic system. So those three courses I teach live. And during COVID now, we are trying or we are in the process of creatively putting together a series of what I refer to as docu-lectures, where I will present this information in a very fun, emotionally feeling and aesthetically pleasing way, as opposed to just a two-dimensional flat online course. That way, folks can get a good amount of information, but I would still prefer to teach my courses live because I, I just, I love the authenticity of that. It feels real. I can connect, I can relate, but these courses will uh, start to be offered through our docu lectures online this fall. And I'm also available for zoom lessons. And we're also presently working on another, a short little video segments called the Serrator review which is the name of our ranch here in Texas. And those are just small little moments for people to keep their curiosity sparked. And we're going to offer just little tips here and there to, to help guide people on their horsemanship journey. So cool. Tell me about an area of the industry that you have a lot of passion for that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk that much about. Mm-hmm. I think it's becoming more talked about now, but you know, I think a part of our learning journey with horses sometimes becomes very rote. We do A, B, and C, the horse does D, E, and so forth. And so we spend a lot of time learning these mechanical exercises. And as I mature, and as I develop more relationships with my horses, I realize that there's just so much more to learn from horses than the movement possibilities that they offer us. 
they offer us so much in terms of what we can learn about ourselves and how we can take those lessons into our everyday life. And so now I'm starting to see my work with horses as more of an artistic expression. Hmm. And my relationship with my horses now are my primary focus and motivation. Mm -hmm. I want the horses to be with me. And if we're going to dance, I want them to enjoy the dance. Right. And so that, that is an area I think as we mature and grow within ourselves and within our, our journey that that becomes uh, very, very fulfilling and it brings horsemanship onto a very, very different and deeper level. So yeah, I, I was, love to I was going to say, I'm like, it's, you probably have different thoughts about it than when you did in Germany. I do. Absolutely. So cool. Love it. Yeah. Well, Jillian, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and share a little bit about your story and you have so much valuable information. It's so exciting to see. So I thank you so much and I wish you all the best. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for taking the time to listen to me flap my gums. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime. (laughs) All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.